really do a good job, and I really do appreciate their work with our kids, don't you? I mean, they really do. They, um, they, they give of their time and their effort and their love, and, and they're teaching our kids faithfully. I can trust them, you know what I mean? Like, we, I, we, I trust our people. Like, they're not giving anything fruity to our kids, you know? Like, they're really, they, they love the Lord, they love our kids, and just so thankful for them, right? So, and thankful for our worship team. And I'm glad our college kids are home. Man, I'm going one, two, three. We got that. That's so cool. Aren't, isn't it nice to have them home? Sort of. No, yeah, okay, yeah. It is. So, it'd be really great if they brought us presents, but it's okay. We'll, we know they're poor, so it's okay. Hey, uh, <clears throat> this morning... Um, tomorrow, tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow morning, um, by the way, we're going to, we have a team of us is going over to Bowers School, which is just behind us. You know that New River Church is the community partner for Bowers Elementary School. So we're doing a little meet and greet over there with the teachers before school tomorrow morning, taking some bagels and coffee. And, and really what it is, is it's a chance to pray, a chance, uh, a chance really to, you know, begin to forge some relationships with the actual teachers, and, you know, we've been dealing with administration, but now we want to really get to know some of the teachers, you know, and uh, it's very important for them to put some faces to names and such, so would you pray with us that 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 would be a good thing tomorrow morning and that good stuff will come out of that, and I'm confident that it's going to be it's exciting. These are exciting days, really, that we have the privilege to be able to be used by God in our elementary school. It's just really neat to me. And, um, you know, the simplest things, right? I mean, uh, coffee and donuts, who would have thought? But God can use coffee and donuts, right? And um, so that's ultimately what it's about. It's bigger than coffee and donuts. Um, and then also, you guys, thank you. We've um, collected enough uh, toys for about 27 different kids, um, 14 families that um, will be able to have uh, Christmas presents for their kids this year because of your generosity, New River Church. So thank you. God bless you. And um, it's just neat to know that um, God can use us in that way too, huh? So this morning, I'd like to turn, if, take your attention first. We're going to go to a couple different passages. First one is in Genesis chapter 35, the very beginning of the Bible. But I um, would like to tell you a Christmas story this morning in the time we have left from the Bible. It's a piece of the Christmas story that perhaps you've not ever heard before. So I invite you to hang with me until the end. I promise that it's good, and I promise that it's Christmassy. Um, We've just finished this political season, right, where uh, the poor character of our presidential candidates has been brought into the open, and the term flawed candidate has been thrown around quite a bit. The the truth is, um, well, that's all God has to work with are flawed candidates. You ever thought about that? (laughs) So... I want to introduce you to someone in the Bible who's one of God's flawed candidates. And, uh, you know, including present company, that's all God has. Our story begins in Genesis 35, where a conniving man, a deceiving man, an untrustworthy man, a very flawed candidate, 
suffers one of the worst days of his life. His name is Jacob. And through a series of odd events, he ended up marrying two sisters. The older sister was named Leah, and the younger sister was named Rachel. The Bible tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. As you can imagine, that would have caused some tension in their already tense polygamous home, right? Compounding the tension was the fact that Leah was able to bear children, and she gave a lot of sons to Jacob, which back then was a really big deal. Meanwhile, Rachel was unable to bear children. For all of Jacob's lying and his rottenness, there's one thing that is a good thing in Jacob's life. One thing, sort of, is this, that he really did love Rachel. The love story between Jacob and Rachel is kind of one of the famous love stories in the Bible. He really did love Rachel. So without a doubt, Jacob would have shared the pain of his beloved's empty womb. And then after many years of struggle, after years of envy and trial and stress and tension and hurt and emptiness, God heard Rachel's prayer and she was able to conceive a son whom they named Joseph. And then, wonder of wonders, a short while later, the woman who had spent so many years barren and struggling became pregnant again with a second child. Wow. And as you read the story, you think, man, things are beginning to turn around for Rachel. Like, she's gone from all these bad years and now it's starting to cook in her life, right? She had not just one son, but then she became pregnant with another son. And just when the hope seems to come alive in her life, tragedy struck. Let me read it for us. Genesis chapter 35. We start with, um, we start with verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were there, still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth to their second son, and she had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, which means the son, my Bible says, the son of my trouble. But his father, that would be Jacob, named him Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is, what is that? That is what? Bethlehem. Huh. I told you we'd be talking about Christmas. We're getting there. Over the tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb to this very day. So you read that correctly. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried in the town of Bethlehem. And it's the very town where many years later, many, many years later, Jesus would be born, and the shepherds were watching their flocks by night, and the star, and the angels, and the manger, and all that we've come to love so much about Christmas. Bethlehem was at first the place of Jacob's probably worst day and greatest pain. Bethlehem's the place where he buried the love of his life. 
And we read that it was also called Ephrath. That's important. Ephrath. Now, speed up the timeline of history. We're going to go about a thousand years later, okay? Can you track with me? So Jacob, Rachel dies, buries her in Ephrath, Bethlehem, a thousand years. March on. Jacob has his tragedy, and now the people of Israel, a thousand years later, Jacob's descendants, they're in trouble again. You see, they've been living in the promised land at this point for hundreds of years, and they've not been faithful to God. And their faith has become so watered down that it's practically meaningless. And they're worshiping false gods, and they're engaging in all kinds of pagan practices, and it's just bad. It's really bad. Not only this, but the Assyrian Empire has, has become this threatening behemoth, and it's conquering the known world around them and subjected a lot of peoples to slavery. And now the Assyrians are breathing down the necks of God's people, Israel. And as you can imagine, they are all afraid because Assyria now wants to lay claim to them. You following that? So the Jews are living in sin, and the Jews are living in fear. Have you ever noticed how those two things seem to go together? And God raises up prophets like a man named Micah to preach. And the goal of Micah's preaching was to turn the people back to God, was to somehow say, look, people, it's bad, but shape up, right? That was, his, that was the thrust of his message it was turned back to God before it gets too late. And a lot of his preaching, honestly, was harsh. Micah was, you know, your typical prophet, the Old Testament prophet, a lot of doom and gloom. However, in the middle of Micah's prophecy, he sees something. Micah, and if you would turn to Micah chapter 5, Micah looks out ahead about 700 years in front of him. And he sees something happening in this little place called Bethlehem Ephrathah. And here's what he says in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. Micah says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. See what I mean? It's not always good news there. Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, and so forth and so on. So here's Micah. He and his people are being threatened by the Assyrians, and Micah offers hope. It's a future hope for them. Right? It was kind of a bad news, good news sort of scenario there. Bad news is you're about to be destroyed by the Assyrians. Bad news. Good news is someday from this little town called Bethlehem, 
Somebody is going to be born, and he is going to be really special. Follow it? So first, he calls the little town. Can we just work through this for a second? First, he calls this little town, Bethlehem Ephrathah. That was its ancient name in order to define which town it was. Because you understand there were two Bethlehems. There was one Bethlehem in the region of Zebulun, and then there was another Bethlehem located in the region of Judah. And so in order to differentiate between the two Bethlehems, Micah goes, this is the Bethlehem Ephrathah, that one. That's the one we're talking about, right? Have you ever noticed how there's only one? Right there, it tells you how small the town is, right? There are lots of Manchesters, aren't there? They're in the country, probably. But there's only one New York City that I can think of. I don't think we have any other New York City in the, in the United States of America. I don't think we have two Los Angeleses or two Chicagos. Ever thought about that? Major metropolises, they stand by themselves, right? But smaller towns, well, you can, multiple ones. Bethlehem was small, so there's two of them. There's nothing odd about that. And Micah says, no, you need to understand this special one I'm talking about is Bethlehem Ephrathah. In fact, um, back then, and he says this, even though you are small among the clans of Judah, that's key, that again tells you how small Bethlehem was. Back then, they counted towns in the registry by how many fighting men they had in the town that were of age for the military, right? So if you had a 1,000 men or more, your town could stand alone in the registry. But for the towns that were smaller, they would group them together until they got a 1,000 men. And then those towns would be together. Bethlehem was so small that it's not even counted. It's kind of one of the, you're the smallest among the clans of Judah. Chances are good Bethlehem maybe didn't even have any fighting men in it. Historians suggest it might have had maybe 300 people tops on a good day. Women, children, cats, dogs, the UPS guy that drives through once a week. They were counting them, right? You did everything you could. I mean, Bethlehem's like a, it, it's a, it's a trailer park. It's not even, it's just a small little insignificant place. That's the point. And so he goes, out of this town, out of this town, This town that you wouldn't expect anything good to come from. It's not cutting edge. It's not on its own. It's it's not a metropolis. This town, something really cool is going to come out of this town. Someone really cool is going to come out of this town. And he's going to be a ruler. In fact, he's not just going to be any old ruler. He says, look at verse 2, his origins are from of old. From ancient times. In other words, this ruler is an eternal ruler. He's hinting at the fact that the ruler who's coming out of Bethlehem is actually eternal. He's pre-existent. He's not just someone who... In other words, at the time that Mike is making this prophecy, Jesus already was alive, right? You know that, right? Jesus didn't start at Christmas. Follow? The second person of the Trinity is eternal. He's everlasting. He never had a beginning. Christmas is just the day that he came here in the flesh. But prior to that, Jesus always was and he always will be. Follow? 
And Micah goes, this ruler that's coming, he's of ancient days, of ancient times. He's from of old. He's not just your normal guy. And he goes, here's the bad news. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. But the good news, until this special young lady comes. Do you see Jesus in this? I mean, do you, you see this, right? This is pretty clear, isn't it? This is a, a prophet speaking 700 years before it happened, saying, in this little town, Bethlehem, there will be this girl, and she's going to bear a son. And then this son, he's going to be a ruler, and he's going to stand and shepherd his flock in God's strength, in majesty. He's going to live, and it says, and they will live securely because his greatness is going to... You know, in the Bible, and I'm not making any kind of political statement here, but it's just uh, it's an important thing to notice. In the Bible, uh, good leadership is often connected with the peace of the people. And if there's not good leadership, there's no peace. Good leadership, peace. And so here's Jesus. He's speaking about this coming ruler whose leadership is going to be so strong and so great and so good that the people who live under his leadership are marked by peace. Isn't that great? So Micah is predicting that this person is going to come someday. Now you move up the timeline 700 years. Go 700 more years. God's people, the Israelites, had gone through a lot of tumultuous times. There's one takeover after another. After all that time had passed and all those troubles had come, who would remember what Micah had said? 700 years is a long time, isn't it? Can any of you fathom 700 years, right? It's a long time. I mean, if you want to put it in perspective, uh, the United States as a land, I mean, Christopher Columbus wasn't even 700 years ago, if I do my math right. Right? I mean, so our, our nation, it's 700 years is longer than our nation has even been on the planet. Follow? That's a long period of time. So after all of that time, you would think somebody might forget these words that Micah had said when the Assyrians were breathing down their necks. But God didn't forget. The ruler whose origins of old came. The one who would stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord came. And there were these magi. There were these wise men, as we like to call them. They're coming in search of a newborn ruler, and they don't really know where to find him. And so they ask King Herod, who, where he is? And King Herod didn't know where to find him. So King Herod turned to the Jewish scholars, and he said, where would you find the Messiah? And you know what they do? They dig out. An old copy, dusted off, of Micah's prophecy. And you go to Matthew chapter 2. We read this in our Christmas story. The Magi are standing there, and these Jewish scholars are like, uh, well, actually, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. They read this, Matthew chapter 2. Let me just start with uh, verse 1. After Jesus is born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, 
and all Jerusalem with him. So when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And they quote Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Isn't that interesting? Micah prophesies that this is going to happen. 700 years later, it happens. And the Jewish scholars know about it. And they know it so well because Micah said it so clearly that they can almost give directions to the wise men, you know, about where to find them. You know, one of the things that always grabs my heart about this when I read this in Matthew 2 is we don't have any record of the Jewish scholars ever going to check it out. They give directions, but they don't bother to go check it out themselves. I find that fascinating. So they said, here he is. He's supposed to be born in this little place, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Two weeks ago, I talked about Bethlehem, and I shared that the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Remember that? You guys all joked last week. Joe was like, made me hungry, right? We were... So it's ironic, right, that Jesus, the bread of life, would be born in the house of bread. This morning, I want to tell you what Ephrathah means. And this has been blessing my socks off all week long, and I can't wait to share it. So here it is. Ephrathah was a woman's name. <clears throat> it comes from two words, two Hebrew words, afer and para, and I'm probably saying them wrong, so forgive me, Hebrew scholars. Afer means bandage in Hebrew, and para means fruitful. It has this idea that after a wound has been healed and bandaged, that you can be fruitful. It's a beautiful picture if you think about it. It's a beautiful hope-filled word, right? That here's this, this wound, this hurt that happened. And then it's bandaged, and now out of that hurt, fruit. Something good comes out of that hurt. Remember where our story began today? Jacob buried Rachel in Ephrath, Right? which was Bethlehem, this place of deep wounding for Jacob. It's probably the worst day of Jacob's life. His, his beloved wife died giving birth to their son. I mean, how awful is that? And yet, Jacob buries his wife here in this place called Ephrathah. Do you see the hope? God, I don't know what you're doing. Just, I thought things were going well, God. I thought this whole thing was turned around, God. And then she dies. But we're going to bury her. And we're going to trust Ephrathah. Something fruitful is going to come out of this wound somehow, God. Micah, Micah's pain, a thousand years later, or not Micah, I'm sorry, Judah's pain, a thousand years later becomes Micah's prediction. Micah Again, in pain, 
fear, heartache, struggle. The Assyrians are breathing down their neck. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And where does Micah look? This little place, this little out-of-the-way place. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Somehow, somehow, out of this wound and out of this struggle and out of this difficulty, fruitfulness is going to come, right? And then, 700 years after Micah, Micah's promise, look at, follow this. I kind of thought the peas were cool. Jacob's pain becomes Micah's prediction, becomes God's provision on Christmas night. Jesus is born where? In Ephrathah. Jesus, the one for whom we are said, told, that it's by his wounds that we are healed. Follow that? That's the coolest thing, I think. I mean, who comes up with this stuff? Only God can put this together. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is not, somebody could not have, you couldn't have written this, you know? That out of this place, Ephrathah, God would come, and it was his very wounds that would bring healing to you and me. Wow. Jacob's pain becomes Micah's prediction, becomes God's promise, God's provision, becomes our prospect. Our prospect. I know that out of my woundedness could come fruit. Look at there's two there's two applications to this study this morning. And I'm going to invite the worship team. You can come and, and prepare if you would. But two applications. The first one is this. You've been wounded. And you know what your temptation is? It's to guard that and hide it because you don't want to get wounded again. But you know what? God has the capacity to turn that place of woundedness into fruitfulness. He can bandage it and make it fruitful. In fact, the place of your greatest wounds, almost often in God's hands, can become the platform for your greatest ministry. It's amazing how God does that. But you know what we have to do first? We have to give it to him. Because we tend to do this with our wounds. I'm I'm either embarrassed or ashamed or I just figure they're they're just mine. Whatever reason, but we, we do this with them. I need to do this with them. I need to give them to him. And he can bandage it and he can make it fruitful. That's the first application. The second application is, I wonder what God can do with you and me. Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. A dinky, a dinky little nowhere town doing nothing important until God showed up. Right? Are you not Bethlehem? Am I not Bethlehem? Are you kidding me? I'm dinky, unknown, pretty useless, figure I got not much going on, and then God shows up. God's endorsement is really big, isn't it? 
His endorsement's huge. His endorsement gives value to those he endorses. That's what an endorsement does, doesn't it? Like, for example, if, uh, if LeBron James puts his name on a pair of sneakers, like, what's he done? He's endorsed the sneakers, right? And so now his name turns a little pair of sneakers into something cool. Now all of a sudden, all these kids want to buy his sneakers because then I can play just like LeBron James does, right? What, what happened? He endorsed it. His name on the sneaker gives it value. Follow that. You are just a sneaker, man. So am I. And I even stink most of the time, right? But if the God of the universe endorses it, he puts his name on you and me. He puts his name on you and me. And that gives you incredible value and purpose. He turns you from just a ordinary into something extraordinary. And he takes your wounds and he bandages them and he even makes them fruitful. That's what happens when God shows up. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. Would you pray with me, God? I need you to show up in my life in a big way. So Lord, I'm done with uh, doing this and trying to protect it and hold on to it myself. And Lord, I give it to you, and I need you to show up in a big way. God, if you don't show up, then I will just be a dinky, no-name, whatever, and not accomplish much or not be much. But God, if you do show up, God, wow, God, and that's what I want. I offer you, God, myself. I lay myself before you, God, and I invite you to come and to fill me, to mark me, to to put your name on me, God, and to to make me, Lord, the man that you dreamed and you've created me to be, God. So, God, that's our prayer today. I give this to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to invite you now. We're going to, this altar is open, you know, and I invite you to join me here this morning and just to do that, give this to God. Just give yourself We were, Bud and I were just talking this morning about this. You know how the Bible, one of, the Bible says that uh, um, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, do not be drunk with wine, that leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And something the Lord was just showing me this week, I was praying about that. And that, you know, when you're filled with wine, you, how, many, how many times we give ourselves over to the control of alcohol, right? And it usually causes us to do stupid things, doesn't it? But yet we still give ourselves over to the control of that substance. Why? I don't know why, but people do it all the time, right? And the same thing is true when I give myself over to the control of the Holy Spirit. It means, I, it means he, he takes over, right? And you know that it's, I think it's funny, that it's odd, weird, that I resist allowing the Holy Spirit to control me. But I'm more than willing to allow alcohol to control me. Alcohol controls and makes me stupid. The Holy Spirit controls, right? And a lot of times we don't want him to control because it's like, well, what if he makes me say something that, you know, makes me look funny? What if I 
what he's going to make me talk about Jesus at work and they're going to think I'm weird. He's going to make me give something more than I really have to give. If the Holy Spirit's in control, I mean, now my pocket's his and my schedule's his and my thoughts are his and he's going to do things with it that maybe uh, I'm uncomfortable with. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Why we would give ourselves over to the control of some substance like alcohol and willingly do that when we know that it leads to just foolishness and not allow the Holy Spirit to take control. (laughs) So anyway, this morning, we've got to give it to him, friends. We've got to give it to him. And when he comes in, he endorses, and it's good. He can turn woundedness, make it bandaged, and make it fruitful. So let's stand, and I'm going to open up our altar again. Please come and pray if you would like and process through this with God, okay?